For the Lover Dog with Janice Wolf. Hey there, it's another exciting Friday. And what a beautiful day it was in the Northeast here. We've got this really, really pretty weather. And, you know, one of the things that I'm always asked with the change of weather is how it impacts dogs and their need to have flea and tick protection because, obviously, when we don't have a brutally cold winter or one that has a lot of uh, cold temperatures and ice, the ticks particularly, particularly, oh, that was a good joke, the ticks will um, not die. So then you have to start up with your flea and tick protection. Actually, um, and keep it going. Like this winter, if you're if you've got your dog on flea and tick, I would keep it going and talk to your veterinarian. You know, keep it going through the year because there are still ticks out there. They do typically die the first frost, but as we see, lots of trees and flowers, and there's pollen that shouldn't be there. And all the little bulbs, and uh, like by my house, we have all little snowdrops, and and uh, everything's starting to come up already. And it's only what beginning middle of February, so we really have to make sure that our dogs are protected. Now, if you are more like I am, where you know, like natural remedies, there are a lot of really great products um, out there. Um, there's uh, one called Vets Best which is a wonderful, oh, well, God, my husband and I used to use that as basically deodorizer for the house. It smells like, you know, like a great cinnamon and nutmeg and cloves. It's just really delicious, but it's fantastic for getting rid of fleas and ticks. So rather than putting something on your dog, like a topical and taking a chance of it, you know, causing problems, right? You know, some some dogs are allergic to it. I've seen dogs that have quote-unquote, hot spots between their shoulder blades, and they get it, and it starts healing, and then they get another hot spot every single month. Hello! So some dogs are allergic to those topicals. I'm not a huge fan unless the benefits of using them outweigh the potential detriments to the animal. But one of the other important parts of that is if you are using something then make sure that you're reapplying it. It doesn't hurt to get one of these sprays uh, like that, and there are definitely a lot of other companies that make great products that you can just spray on. You obviously be very careful around their nose and their eyes and any you know mucous membranes, but you can spray it on their feet and their underside typically, and then just a light coating over the top. Because remember, ticks, you may not be able to see them, and you may have a Lyme vaccine, which is great keeping you protected or keeping your dog protected against Lyme disease, but there's anaplasmosis, there's ehrlichiosis, there are other tick-borne diseases that, you know, animals can get, dogs can get. So it's not just Lyme. So you should still be protecting your dog. And depending on where in the world you live, heartworm may be a problem, but your heartworm pills have benefits as well. Uh, far beyond what typically you would see. For instance, there are some like Interceptor Plus that will protect against hookworms, whipworms, roundworms, and pinworms. So they actually cause the uh, the ticks or the worms, the larvae, to die and they kill that. So you don't wind up with a dog that has worms, which is kind of gross anyway, especially if your dog is in your house sleeping in your bed like mine are. So you know, think about that. Give it a little bit of thought and ask your veterinarian for other options if you choose to do something more natural because there are some really great options. Diatomaceous earth in your yard is a great thing because diatomaceous earth will actually cause the basically implosion of a tick or flea or pretty much any kind of critter Um, and it causes them to dry out from inside and to die. So much like you see a building that is crumbled from within by dynamite, that's basically what happens to the little, tiny little critters, and uh, your dog or your kids or anybody will not be impacted by diatomaceous earth. So you can even use that to get rid of parasites or clean out your gut. If you talk to your doctor... And ask about it because diatomaceous earth, they also have medical grade. It's just basically crushed up, pulverized, powdered 
um, diatoms, which are single-cell organisms from, you know, the dinosaur ages, right? And those diatoms, when you crush them up, it's like think about coral and you crush it up. It absorbs water. And when it absorbs water, it actually is a desiccant, like the little packet of silica that they stick in your pretzels or your, you know, your new jacket or your shirt that came from China or somewhere to keep it from picking up moisture, that silica is a desiccant as well. So that's just a little bit about that. I also want to talk today about health and nutrition, about foods for your dog. We've had so much controversy here. We have people who are raw, 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 and they're the cheerleaders for raw. Well, raw is great if it works for you. Personally, I have tried raw a number of times. I've tried it from every place that's offered it. My dogs look at it like I'm trying to poison them. They want nothing to do with it. There are other people whose dogs do great on raw. But I had a client, actually, the patient is the dog, the client is the human, who called me and was not real happy about doing the raw because his dog had basically choked almost to death in front of him. So this guy who is looking at, you know, his beautiful dog that he loves that had some behavioral issues, but the dog ate the bone as the dog was supposed to do, chew on these bones, and the dog took too big of a chunk and almost died. So there's good and bad to everything. There are great ways to keep your dog's teeth healthy and keep his gut healthy. It doesn't have to be raw. You have to make that decision for yourself. There's some great ones out there as well that are fresh but cooked. There's also raw that's freeze-dried, like the Stellan Chewies, which my guys love. But I still stick with, you know, good old-fashioned, really good high-end kibble, not too high in protein because, remember, protein is can be a little difficult for older dogs to digest, and it can also um, make a dog more energetic. Uh, you want to be careful to avoid any kind of foods that have corn, wheat, or soy in them because corn, let me, listen, honestly, corn is indigestible, right, Amanda? Corn is indigestible. Even in humans, it's indigestible. You ever go to a clam bake or a barbecue? You have your corn, corn in, next day, corn out. You remember you had that ear of corn. So basically, what is your body getting from that? Nothing. What is your dog's body getting? A little bit of the sugars and the, the carbs, which are going to make him more hyper. So if you have a doodle mix of some sort, um, or if you have a hyper lab or a golden, and you're giving him something like, let's say, Miller, who is a yellow lab, best dog in the world, he does not need corn because corn is going to amp him up more. Right, Amanda? Yes, it is. So everything that you do that you put into your dog's body is going to come out in some form. If you're putting a lot of carbs in, you're going to get either a fat dog, depending on the breed, or a hyper dog. If you put a lot of sugars into your dog, guess what? Give your toddler a triple cola before bedtime or nap time and see how that works out. Same thing happens with your dog. Give your dog a good high-quality kibble, and grain-free is not really great for most dogs. Grain-free is what everybody's talking about. Oh, I I want a grain-free diet because dogs don't eat grains. That's so ridiculous. Of course they do because they eat grains that whatever they ate, because they're carnivores, ate. So let's just say they're eating a bunny rabbit, which is really hard and sad and all that. But let's say they're eating a bunny rabbit. That bunny rabbit was eating grains, whatever was out there. Maybe it was eating some wheat shafts, was maybe eating some grasses, maybe it was lucky found a carrot or whatever. So when a dog kills a little animal or a prey animal, First thing they do is go for the innards, as they say down south, the guts. Why do they go for that? Because it's pre-digested. So the easiest way for them to get instant nutrition and instant usable nutrition is to eat the guts, which goes into why we don't use squeaky toys for dogs with behavioral issues. We're going to get back to the nutrition in a moment. Squeaky toys, squeak, 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 squeak. Get your four chihuahuas calmed down and then get them a squeaky toy because that's just such a great idea. But what really happens is you're training or teaching your dog 
that it's okay to kill things. So the dog is squeaking the toy. Oh, look, he loves it. Of course, he's killing whatever it is. And then what do the dogs invariably do? They rip the squeaker out and they start ripping the stuffings out. Why do they do that? Because they want to see you put another squeaker and more stuffing back in and stitch it up or buy them the same toy again? No, it's because they think they killed it. And in nature, if they killed an animal and the animal is screaming for dear life, and now the animal dies, there's no more squeak. So your dog kills your squeaker. And then after he kills the squeaker, and he's like, hey, this thing isn't moving anymore. This thing isn't squeaking. It's not trying to have its life saved. So now what we wind up with is a dog who kills things and then unstuffs them looking for the guts, looking for the stomach and the contents. So why would we want to teach our dogs to hunt? I mean, listen, I have squeaky toys around this house that I don't think any of our dogs has ever squeaked once because they're like, eh, I'm not allowed to do that. But it's very handy when I have a five-pound mini poodle and an 11-pound Italian greyhound at my house and I can have my 100-pound Ridgebacks running around and they're not trying to go after a little animal because they're not taught to hunt. And these are lion-hunting dogs that hunt lions and bay lions in South Africa. These are not mini dogs. But your dog, who may have a behavioral issue, which is probably why you're listening to my show right now, your dog who has a behavioral issue does not need to learn that he is killing his own food, which is why when we're feeding our dogs and we have a dog with a behavioral issue, don't use squeaky toys, don't play tug of war because you're teaching the dog to fight for whatever his food or fight the leader, fight his parents basically to see who's in charge. So let's get back to the other things to avoid in food now that I've chastised everybody about what they're doing with their dogs. But that's so much fun, Janice. I love that. That's my favorite thing or my husband's favorite thing. Well, all right, keep doing it. That's all right. I need more business. So corn we talked about. Wheat. Wheat is the number one cause of food-related allergies in dogs, and it's also the number one cause of food-related aggression. Wheat can cause inflammation, especially gluten. So those of you who are gluten intolerant or those of you who are unable to process certain foods, imagine if we keep giving you little bits of that all the time. Maybe you're not going to get sick, but you're not going to feel well. Wheat causes inflammation. So it not only causes, can cause hot spots, can cause itching, allergies, all kinds of things like that. Wheat can also cause inflammation in the brain or in the neuro- neurological system. So we don't want to use things that are going to cause problems. Now, most dogs might be totally fine with that, but most dog owners are not listening to my show right now. You are. Why are you listening? Because you have a dog with a behavioral issue or because you have an insatiable thirst for knowledge that you won't hear anywhere else. And if you do hear it anywhere else, it's probably pirated from me. So let's talk about another thing that's not good for dogs. Soy. Soy causes gas. So soybeans or anything like that, edamame, think about soy. Soy causes gas. Well, what does that matter? Well, probably if you have a long kind of lumpy dog like a basset hound or corgi, you're probably fine. But if you have a dog like a boxer, a Doberman, even a Ridgeback, um, a German Shepherd, a Great Dane, and a lot of other breeds with have a very deep capacious chest and they have that body type and then they have a narrow waist, those dogs are at a much higher risk of gastroporsion, which is a twisting or turning, flipping, if you would, of the stomach and it causes gas. So let's say you have like soy or whatever food is fermenting in the dog's stomach. You now also have a problem because all of a sudden you have the dog's stomach twisting and now the contents cannot move through and it causes a blockage and eventually it is a surgical emergency. Most dogs who get it, if they are not immediately at the right place at the right time, um, most of those dogs do pass away They and it's a terrible death. I mean, it's the one you'd want your worst enemy to have. There are a few of them, but this is this is definitely not something you ever want for an animal to have and to pass away from. So, Soy is not good for dogs. And then you have 
DHA and DHT, those are chemical preservatives that extend the shelf life of food for a million years so that the food that's made in, you know, 2022 is good till 3022. It won't go bad. It's not good to start with, but it won't go spoil or be rancid. It'll just be full of preservatives and chemicals that over time can kill your dog or cause him great pain or great agony and, and cancer. So BHA, BHT, no good. Red dye 40. Actually, let's just expand that category to almost all dyes. Why would you need to put dye in dog food? Because most dogs, if they have cones, they only have some cones, not very many, so they can't really see colors very well. But, I mean, there are always individuals who may be able to see a little bit better, but basically the rods in the eyes are what gives you the contrast and the black and white, gray, etc. The cones are what is able to distinguish color. So even a dog who has a number of cones in its eyes and has a lot of cones, it can probably see about similar to the color that we would see at dusk, where it's kind of a muted color. Now, let's go to one more thing. So we have corn, wheat, soy, BHA, BHT, red dye 40, byproducts. What's a byproduct? Sounds like, oh, what's a byproduct? Two products? No, it's BY, byproduct. So think of your nice Costco rotisserie chicken, Whole Foods rotisserie chicken, Boston Market, yum, yum. And think of that. Not that part. Think of what was on it before. So the innards, again, I love that word, the gizzards, the brains, the rectums, the feathers, the ears if chickens had ears, the, the beaks, the toes. I mean, think about it. And whatever's in the animal at time of death or slightly after, that is a byproduct. Digest is even lower on the category list than that. Digest is basically all the crap that they can't categorize as being a byproduct, so it's even lower than that. And then you have things like, well, you know, propylene glycol, a component of antifreeze, that's toxic in, in larger amounts, and your dog, if it licks antifreeze, it's because it's sweet. So why are we going to give our dogs stuff that's bad for them? I'm not sure, but I don't. So what are some good brands? There are so many wonderful brands of dog food out there now. People talk about some of these prepared foods. Yeah, they're fine. They're just crazy expensive. I wouldn't say they're any better than anything that you can buy in the supermarket, like a Fresh Pet or something like that, which is a good brand um, for a topper. But remember, if you're using anything and you're doing raw without bones, and if you're giving dogs meat, without bones, they need to have something to help them with their teeth. So that's why I like kibble because it doesn't stick on their teeth. I give my dogs, well, Amanda can vouch for that. We get, what, yogurt, we get chicken, two kinds of chicken, a can, some Stellan Chewy's toppers, some maybe fresh pet toppers, you know, their new vet vitamins, which every dog should be on those things. Um, it's N-U-V-E-T, NuVet.com. If you want to order, it's uh, you have to get like an order code. I can give you guys that. It's 86686. 86686 it is. So if you want to get that product, that's a great product. That's what I use. Um, I use uh, a, a kibble, a particular one that I really like that I went out to Minnesota to see where it's made. But again, I'm giving my dogs what's good for their breed and their type. You might have a different need and your dog, if it's a hunting dog or sporting dog, you might need something that has corn in it because it makes them hyper and you don't want your hunting dog to say, thanks, dad, I'm going to stay on the couch today. You want the dog to be hyper if you have an Aussie or a Border Collie or a Sheltie or something that's actually working. So there's a purpose and a need for different types of dog foods for different dogs and for different lifestyles. So... You've pretty much got all of that. Now, it's not just important what you feed. It's important when you feed. So think about in nature, okay? And people laugh at me about this sometimes, and I laugh back because ignorance has no bounds. And sometimes when people think they're, you know, oh, my God, that's so stupid. Okay, well, that just proves that you're not a very smart person because you're not listening to somebody who knows a whole lot more than you'll ever know. When you go out, and you, let's say your kids are hungry, 
you go out to the supermarket, right? Wouldn't you kind of say that's hunting, especially during COVID with toilet paper? Wouldn't you say that it's important for you to go out to find food, that it doesn't just materialize in your refrigerator when it starts getting empty? You have to go out and find food. Now, the fact that through, you know, the last couple of hundred years, we've evolved into civilized beings who earn money at a job and then take the money from that job and buy food, but you are hunting. You're not sitting at home and having everything delivered, right? You're going out to the supermarket. So your dog has to get that feeling also that he or she is hunting with you. And the easiest way to do that is to have your dog take a walk with you on a leash beside you or behind you before each of his meals. If you don't do that, and if you go out for a walk and the dog is leading you and he goes into the house first and he barks at you for an hour to make you get him his food and there's no rhyme or reason, then you know what's going to happen? Your dog is going to think he's in charge. And guess what? Your dog is in charge. When dogs have behavioral issues, it's almost always caused by the way the human treats the dog. Now, my dogs are pretty spoiled. I would say my dogs are very spoiled. They sleep in my bed. They get fed certainly way before I do. Um, They have beautiful beds. They have mats. They go all over the place with me. I have several service dogs. They travel with me. They go all over. And they are pretty spoiled. They're living in a, uh, what did those nice people refer to my house as a mansion, um, which it is. Um, but yeah, my dogs live a pretty darn good life. I think I'd like to be one of my dogs because I get to live here, but I get to pay for it and work on it and clean it and, and do all that. And they get to enjoy all the benefits without any of the problems or, or worries. Well, hopefully the fact that you're listening to me right now means that you also spoil your dog rotten, but I spoil my dogs, but I don't spoil them rotten. And there's a difference. Giving the dogs love and affection and the best food and the best veterinary care and taking them places and all, those are things that every dog deserves. But you have to also remember that when your dog has a behavioral issue, he takes on one more job that he doesn't really need, which is to provide for you and protect you. You don't need your dog, even if he's a, you know, 110-pound black German shepherd named Bo. He does not need to be your boss. He doesn't need to have that worry. And that's like putting your toddler in charge of paying your mortgage and your insurance and your car insurance and your taxes and everything else. So we really have to look at this in a different way and think about it as what are we planning to do here? What are we doing? How are we going to make this change for our dogs so that our dogs know that, yes, we love you, but you need to not be in charge? Well, the way to do that is by doing what I call hunt, wait, eat. Hunt, wait, eat is basically taking your dog out for a walk and having him beside you or behind you. And if you don't know how to do that, you can call our 800 number, which is um, 855-449-9288. Again, 855-449-9288. And you can give us a call. We'll be happy to help you or send one of our people out to help you. But the key here is you have to pretend as in nature where nature would take you, would take that dog, and the dog would go out with other dogs, and they would go hunting, whether they found something that was already dead, whether they had to help each other and hunt in a pack to go find food. And I always get a kick out of the adults who say, well, that's just not the current thing. See, dogs these days They don't think like that. Oh, why? Because you have a magical, like, input into, like, the canine world? I don't think so. Because dogs have been around way longer than we have. And guess what? If you take your ill-behaved, you know, poodle mix or whatever, bulldog mix or whatever you have, you take your ill-behaved dog and or your neighbor's ill-behaved dog, because hopefully your dogs are well-behaved because you're listening to my show, But if you take this ill-behaved dog 
or even your good dog. And we let, let's say, 10 dogs out. They're going to go for hierarchy. They're going to go, they're going to fight. A couple of them are going to fight. A bunch of them are going to be like, I'm not getting involved. And some are just going to wait to see what happens. And once that happens, now your dog is a dog. When he is a dog, do you have any doubt that he's not going to try to find, like, kill a mouse, kill a rabbit, kill a squirrel when he's hungry? I don't care what kind of dog it is. You think he's not going to go searching for food and water? Do you think he's not going to, like, be trying to take care of himself and, you know, find something to eat and a place to hunker down? Of course he is. He's a dog. And dogs do what dogs do because they're dogs. Like men do what men do because they're men and women do what women do because we're women. And that's why we do what we do. So if you take that dog and you take him out and simulate that hunt, so to speak, and you take him out and now he's walking, you know, out ahead of you, well, then he's in charge. But if you're behind him, right, and then the view is always the same if you do that, if you're behind your dog, especially if he's an uptail dog. What the goal is, is to take our dogs out with them beside us or behind us. So that as we're walking, we're guiding him, we're guiding her, we're taking them out and we're showing them that we are taking them to find food. And when we find it, what happens? Who eats first? No, that's not right. Your dog would probably not eat first unless he's the most, if you want to call it dominant or the most high-ranking or strongest one there, then your dog might be the first one. But your dog, who has a behavioral issue, doesn't need to worry that he is or she is in charge and is number one. So you take your dog out on a gentle leader or whatever you need to use, but preferably not prong collar, shock collars, choker change, all those things, because I think they're barbaric. But get your dog to walk in the house first, and then walk around your yard or whatever area you're going to be walking, and then you let him know where he's able to go to the bathroom. He goes to the bathroom, and you walk him for a few minutes, come back to your house, and wait 15 to 45 minutes before you feed your dog. The reason we do that is, and there's more to that, and you can read it in my book, Happens, S-H-H-H, Happens, Dog Behavior 101 by Janice Wolf. And you'll read more about it and why we do this. But by showing the dog that you're providing for him and protecting him, you become his parent instead of his child or his sibling. And it is a very, very important thing to do. Very important also that you give your dog what he needs. You know, dogs need more things than humans do sometimes, and that's a good thing. So we're going to take a quick break. And we're going to come back with From Shelter Dog to Service Dog. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. So we were talking earlier about health and nutrition and how to get your dog to be nice and stable. Let's talk about service dogs. I have gotten this week, again, several requests, people saying that, They were getting donated dogs, like donated dogs from a shelter or donated dogs from somebody who said, oh, I'll give you one of my dogs. You know, training a service dog is not an easy thing. It really isn't. And that's what is very frustrating when we see so many people claiming to have expertise because they claim that they trained a service dog for their, you know, teenager for something. Training service dogs, it's very specialized. First of all, Every dog who's a service dog needs to be trained properly for public access, which means when somebody says to you, I'm going to donate a dog to your family because you don't have any small children, and then you can train it to be a service dog. Okay, well, we're assuming or presupposing or presuming that that dog is never going to be in contact with a child. Hello. There are children in the world, although they might, some of them be annoying and run up to your dog. That is not a good quality for a dog. And I see it. I just literally had that happen again today. Someone said that somebody was willing to donate a mixed breed dog or a lab or whatever they wanted um, to the family and how much would it cost to train. And I very nicely answered, well, first of all, there's a one in a hundred chance that that dog is going to be able to be trained for your child as a service dog. The second thing is, if 
let's say what happens, you go to the shelter or you buy a doodle or whatever thing that you want, and you get some, some dog, and you fall in love, and it's a great dog or not, but it's, let's say it's a great dog, and, you know, it loves everybody in the family, and you start training it, and it sits, and it lies down, and it does high five, and it does every trick, and now you start training it to be a service dog. And the dog already failed in our book. Why? Because the dog is friendly with everybody. A service dog is task trained to assist its owner or handler. So if a dog is too friendly, like a lab or golden, sometimes as great as they can be, they can also be too friendly. And you don't want a dog who is overly friendly with everyone because then you're trying to like, let's say, take a golden retriever who's a happy-go-lucky dog or a, a good lab. And now these dogs, you're basically telling them to stop being who they are. So why would you do that? You want a dog who bonds with the specific person who needs to have the dog. Not everybody in the house, not everybody in the neighborhood, not everybody on the airplane, not everybody in the supermarket. It's specifically for your individual need or that of a loved one. So a service dog A good service dog, let me qualify that. A good, well-trained service dog, like one from Merlin's Kids, one from some of the other good service dog agencies we know of. I know, you know, Guiding Eyes has good, really good dogs. Seeing Eye has them, although both of those have a lot of failures because they're looking for specific traits and sometimes they fail out for health issues, sometimes they fail out, but a lot of them fail out. But the dogs they produce are typically very, very good dogs. Uh, We have a company, Noble Service Dogs, we know is excellent. Um, There's a couple of other really good ones that are out there. But these are companies that work specifically with the need of your individual. And uh, in the case of several of them, like the Merlin's Kids, Noble, and some of the others, those companies also will be able to train specific dogs uh, that are needed for, even for things that, you can't even imagine that they might need uh, peanut allergies for gluten, a dog that can sense gluten or sense peanuts or other allergens, um, a dog that can predict seizures. It's not always possible. You got to be really careful because most seizures are not predictable. Some are, but there are other things and other ways that you can train a dog on seizures. But what happens, you go and you buy a puppy or you, you get a rescue dog from the shelter and you have a one in a hundred chance of that dog being able to make it. So let's say you're six months into the training. It's quite obvious the dog is not capable of it or is afraid or is reactive or one of any of other million behaviors that are not desirable. And now you have your pet. And let's say the dog doesn't like other dogs now. Well, now you can't even get another dog. So what, what did you do there, right? Think about that. So we want to make sure that whatever dog we choose is going to be 100% able to go through. And we even have health issues or growth issues. There's a million things that can happen. There are just so many different things. So sometimes it is better off uh, for you to find a good agency, like a really legitimate one. And I wouldn't say going uh, necessarily to, um, you know, one of these uh, self-certification organizations that tries to get people to or companies to sign up so they look like they're doing something because that's very political and you have to pay a lot of money to get listed. Well, I don't, I'm not going to pay money to get listed. I know what I'm doing and I've been doing it longer than almost anybody else has 40 years. I'll say I'll put that record up against anybody's. But the thing is that there unfortunately are so many unscrupulous places out there Um, One of the families that we gave a free service dog to had had two prior very bad experiences um, with two different service dog agencies in Colorado, and they raised a lot of money. They never got a dog, and another company came in, um, and it was terrible. They gave them a, a little dog that was aggressive with special needs people and was running all over, wasn't even leash trained or housebroken or anything. And they had a terrible experience. They wound up giving the dog away. And so we gave them a free dog. And we keep in touch with the family. They're lovely. 
they said this is the best trained, most amazing dog. And the dog is bonded only to the young man who the dog is for. So you have to be able to know what the purpose is. And you have to know about the disability before you can train. You can't just train a dog to sit and lie down and think that that's a service dog. It is not. A service dog is individually task trained and the dog has to be able to do some skill. And listen, there's a lot of really smart dogs. I think maybe sometimes most dogs are smarter than most humans. And we can argue that for a couple of hours, but I don't think anybody here is going to disagree. So we have a great dog. We think he's going to make it, and he, and he fails out. And now you can't have another dog. So really, you should always consider if you um, find a good, reputable agency, um, and you can't always go by what you see in the, in the newspaper, so to speak, um, ask to speak with some families who have gotten dogs from the, the organization. Ask them, how many dogs have you trained? Because you'll see... Uh, like the one woman who it was about 10 years ago, I was at an event and she said, oh yeah, we've been around for nine years. We've trained, we've been training dogs for nine years. I said, oh, well, that's pretty, you know, it's not super long, but it's long enough. At least I would feel like they would know what they're doing. And I said, well, how many dogs have you trained? So oh, we've trained a, a lot of dogs, nine years we've been training dogs, service dogs and providing them. I'm like, how many years? She goes, oh, you know, or how many dogs? And she says, oh, I, I can't even count. And I said, try. How many dogs have you done? 10, 100, 500? She said, four. I said, excuse me? Four. You trained four service dogs over nine years and you consider yourself a legitimate, reputable agency? I don't think so. You know, that is the problem. And that's not even the worst. You'll have your local dog trainer who's like, oh, I can train a service dog. No, you can't. Who the heck trained you to train service dogs? Who got you a degree in special ed? How do you know about all the different disabilities and what the needs are? You don't know, and you're not going to get it from watching a YouTube video. You need to have it hands-on. You need to have somebody who knows what the heck they're doing. And I'm just tired of it. So... Every time I get a phone call from somebody who's, oh, I want to get a self-trained dog, instead of doing that and taking a chance and spending two years and, and probably failing, why wouldn't you just get a dog that's already trained, that you have a guarantee, that you know that if the dog has a problem, they'll switch it out for you or they'll help you with it? Not that, I mean, I had uh, somebody else in New Jersey here Um who had a dog and they got the dog out in Texas and the dog, and I have another lady in Texas who got one from out there too. And both of them got dogs. The dogs, the one dog was a pit mix and the dog basically attacked their other dog, killed a cat. I mean, it was a disaster and then went crazy in the house, went after the kid and then went after the mother when she tried to help and then went after the father when he tried to help. So three family members got bitten, the cat was killed, and the other dog was mauled. All right. And that agency, believe it or not, when we checked to see where that dog was, assuming he was either going to be put down or completely retrained and given to somebody who knew how to handle the dog, they they gave it to a little kid, like a seven-year-old kid. And I don't even know what happened, but I can imagine but that is not a reputable agency. And all I try to do my whole life is dedicated to helping people to have better lives and helping animals have better lives. So as soon as you start taking things and trying to claim that you have expertise you don't have, I get really upset about it because I have a lot of expertise. I have a tremendous amount of expertise and I'm still learning. You know, we we have to always think that we are always still learning. And if we think we don't need to learn anymore, then that's when you should quit because you've just shown that you're not willing to change. And, you know, the other part of that is that you have people who say, well, this is cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, scientific training. Guess what? Dogs haven't read a science book. Dogs do what dogs do because they're dogs. If you can tell the behavior of an animal through its movements and its body postures and its energy, which is not, you know, voodoo crystals, but you can tell, well, I shouldn't say you can tell. I can tell when I see an animal, I can tell if it's ill, 
if it's got issues, if it's going to bite, if it's going to run. I know that because I have that ability and I'm very good at that. A lot of people out there who are very good at that, but there are a lot of people who have no clue and they will tell you to do things that are just crazy or wrong in so many different ways. And if somebody says, oh, I've trained three service dogs, run, run, run fast, even if they do it for free because they're going to wreck your dog. I think I always joke my first hundred dogs and I'm a canine behaviorist and I've been working with animals and dogs and horses and rabbits since I was like seven years old. And I'm telling you, my first hundred service dogs I trained were disposable, were, you know, those were ones I gave away. And, you know, the dogs were better than anything these people had ever seen, but they're not like the ones we're producing now that are like so perfect because you learn as you go. It's like a new driver. You know, you give a kid, you know, let's say a stick shift and a, let's say a Hummer stick shift or a Corvette stick shift and say, here, now you're going to learn how to drive. Well, that kid might learn how to drive, but that kid, chances are, is going to crack up the vehicle and probably get himself killed. So it's not so easy. It's not something that can be done once. It's something that requires a great deal of practice, a great deal of expertise, and multiple people who know what they're doing so they can bounce different ideas off of each other. So it's not so simple. It's not so cut and dried. Now, your service dog, what are some of the things that the average service dog can do? Because people ask me that all the time, like, well, wait a minute. You know, how do I know, how do you know how to do that? Well, sometimes you don't even have to. Sometimes it's just common sense and logic. Now, let's say you need a dog for mobility and somebody's going to donate a doodle to you. What the heck is a 40-pound doodle or even a 60-pound doodle thing going to do for you for mobility? Unless you're, you know, a little person and you, you know, you're, you know, 28 inches or 30 inches off the ground. If you're an average-sized person, you know, five feet to six feet tall, you are going to need something bigger than a 45 or 50-pound animal. And those little, those doodles are not typically built well. They're not built stocky like you'd say like a Ridgeback or even a Lab or even a Golden. You're also better with a dog who's got good musculature. And a lot of these doodles, I mean, like we have this cute little one that comes, his name is Teddy. He's adorable. But you you look at him and you think he's 60 pounds and you go to pick him up, he's like 20 pounds. So stop thinking about getting something, you know, that, oh, look how cute and furry that's going to need to be groomed and cut every month at 125 bucks a month um, and plus everything else and having to brush it out all the time. It's a lot of work. Look at something that's got a little bit stronger, more solid build to it. Look for a dog that doesn't have a sloping back like a German Shepherd. They're fine for something but not typically mobility unless they have a flat back because if they have those long sloping backs, they have weak back and they have weak hind end. A lot of them have degenerative myelopathy or are carriers, and carriers are usually not affected. But you have to look at what your needs are. So there are mobility dogs that can anchor you uh, for like the dog will stand and like we do, um, we're doing with one dog now, Ranger, he's getting a lift assist. So he learns how to lift a person up on and off the commode, uh, from a se- seated position, uh, from the floor. And these are all different things that we train them individually to the needs of whichever recipient is going to be receiving this dog. So every dog, every service dog does something different because the needs and the disabilities of the individual who will be receiving the dog are varied. So that's for mobility. Mobility dogs can also sometimes help someone who's in a wheelchair or a walker indisposed in another way. Um, They can help them by opening a door, opening the refrigerator door, getting something out of the refrigerator. Uh, There are certainly enough dogs who have been trained to load and unload uh, washing machines and such. Um, You know, that's very specialized, and there are a couple of really good agencies that do that. Um, But most of the time, you know, if, if somebody says, oh, I can do that, it takes a lot of expertise. It really does. And you have to respect people like me and people like the others um, out there who are doing a really professional top-notch job 
to do it and not just, you know, saying, oh, I trained my dog to be a service dog. It sits there and my kid pets it, so it's a service dog. No, it's not. So we have mobility. We have blood sugar, which can be a very tedious process. I've got a few of them right now I'm training for individuals uh, to become a diabetic alert dog. One is for hypoglycemia alert. And for blood sugar, that's one that I will tell you right now, seizures as well, but really blood sugar is a very tedious process because you can't just send a sample every six months like some people think they can do and they send one sample in six months or eight months and think that you're able to train the dog on it. The issue when you're training for blood sugar is you have to train on the normals as well as the abnormals. So if you're, let's say, training a dog to hit low blood sugar and the person only sends you low blood sugar samples, let's say 50 to 70, and you're training on that, that becomes the normal, right? Because that's what the dog is learning. So if you have the dog alert on a 50 to 70 and now you give it 120, it doesn't alert on the 120, but it also won't alert on a 200 because you didn't teach it. So you need multiples. Like we have like the one person is, is getting three to four samples a week, two normals and typically two abnormals. And you train them on that and you teach the dog to alert only on the normal or on the abnormal in this case and to ignore the normal. So the dog comes up, checks your breath, and your breath, you're, you know, actually fine. Your blood sugar is fine. And if the dog starts alerting, you just give them a little correction. But when the dog picks out the right sample and uh, alerts on the right sample, you're going to reinforce it, reward it. The key here, again, is to have good samples, viable samples, and you do need them for typically six months, sometimes up to a year of consistent Samples. They cannot be, oh, I'm sending you three this month and I'm not sending you any for six months because you can't train the dog. Another thing that can happen is dogs get burnt out pretty easily. So if you start the training and the dog is doing really well with the training and then you don't have viable samples, and again, you can't really use samples from somebody else because everybody's scent is different. You need to train on the control of the same normal sample and then you need to train on the low or the high. So that's your issue. If you're training on other people, then you're training the dog to alert on your smell versus somebody else's smell, not on your blood sugar versus high versus normal. So that's something that's, you know, uh, something dogs can do. Another great thing dogs can do with scent, um, some dogs can do, is seizure alert. It's a pretty sketchy and nefarious road with seizure alert because some seizures can be uh, noticed ahead of time. You'll see an aura or smell an aura or see a twitch or something the person does. So if there's anything like that, then yes, a good behavioral service dog trainer can train that. But if you don't have that and you're saying it's something like basically I describe it as a backfire in a car, if it just happens, then first of all, the dog wouldn't even be there because by the time it happened, you'd already be on the floor or having the seizure. So most dogs you see are going to be seizure response. And even those, most of the time people will just teach them to, uh, you know, lie down on the person or near the person. So, I mean, that's really not a skill, so to speak. Um, we train dogs to carry different items to provide medication to, uh, bring a backpack or a medication uh, container or whatever it is. And this way the dogs are able to help mitigate that. Um, that's another type, the seizure alert and seizure response. And then you have the good old-fashioned autism service dog, PTSD dog. Those are the ones that a lot of people do because they're basically you put a little public access on the dog. Uh, well, we put a lot on, but I'm saying with the average place, They'll put some public access on the dog, and then they just train it to sit or lie down, um, and the kid pets it. That is not a service dog. That's an emotional support dog. That's a, something else other than a service dog. A service dog, like what we train them, we train them on cortisol. We train them on the stress hormones. 
And then when the person or the child is having a meltdown, the dog is able to come up to them and lay across them, lay next to them, whatever, put their paws on their shoulders, their heads, whatever it is that the person likes. And we train it specifically for that individual. So those dogs are very, very different, even though they're quote-unquote autism dog or PTSD or anxiety dog. They're checking on your cortisol, checking on your hormones, uh, adrenaline, and also there is also uh, a lot of people who have issues with their cortisol, like in Addison's disease, where people aren't producing enough cortisol because a certain amount of it is necessary for your body. But like in Addison's, there's not enough cortisol. So then if you were training a dog for, let's say, Addison's, uh, first thing you're going to do for an Addisonian individual is you've got to get their baseline. You have to figure out what their okay normal is and what their not okay abnormal is. And that can be different from every for every person. So that's why you really need to have an expert in that, somebody who's been doing it 30, 40 years, not somebody who's been doing it 30 or 40 minutes and thinks they can do, you know, because they don't know. And I always say, most people just don't know what they don't know. So they say, oh, I'm an obedience trainer. I can train a service dog. No, you can't. You can't. And don't charge somebody because if you don't know that you can do it and you haven't done it, you know, I would say for an individual, at least 15, 20 dogs that all came out great, you should not be charging. Do it for free. This way, if you ruin it, at least you didn't make people pay ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 for your mistakes and your ineptitude. Well, we're almost ready to be done for the night. I can't even believe it. Um, anybody who needs help, you can always reach out to us at um, 855-449-9288. Again, 855-449-9288. We're happy to help you. Also, please let us know if you've had a bad experience or a good experience with any service dog agency, and we will uh, make sure we take a note of that. And keep an eye on that. And if you do have a bad experience, please let us know and, you know, do the right thing. Make sure that you, if you're paying a lot of money for something, that you're going to get what you're promised. And, um, you know, make sure also you're very honest and honorable on applications for a reputable service dog agency. Don't say something. Don't lie on the application because you put everybody at risk. Uh, we are going to let you go and wishing everybody a happy Valentine's Day, which is coming up in a few days. Love your dogs. Love your families. Take care, and we'll see you next week. 